I invite you to turn again in your Bibles to the book of Ecclesiastes as we consider on this Thanksgiving week the subject of grace-shaped generous gratitude. And if you were listening to the first 23 verses of what we read, you might be thinking, where is the grace, where is the generosity, and where is the gratitude uh, for those first 23 verses we read as this book of Ecclesiastes is often perplexing. It is addressing various subjects of everyday life and how we navigate in it. And some particular portions, if read by themselves, might come across as maybe even depressing. The book as a whole, taken together, is one of the most joyful books in all of God's Word. And I want to consider some themes from the book this morning, but our reading now will just be verses 24 to 26 from chapter 2. So if you're able, please stand for the reading of God's holy and inspired word. Ecclesiastes 2, beginning at verse 24. There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment In his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting, only to give to one who pleases God. This also is vanity. And to striving after wind. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. At the end of chapter 7 of Ecclesiastes, Solomon, the author, referred to throughout the book as the preacher, takes us back to the very beginning of time. He writes that God has made man upright, but in time man has devised many evil schemes. And so we have a reference to creation, how God made mankind originally, but then we have the fall. And ever since the fall, humanity has had an uneasy relationship with this world and the things that it offers. It often views this creation and its goods as things to be desired to bring about satisfaction, meaning, purpose. And throughout church history, those associated with the church have sought to resolve this uneasy tension. Some on one side take particular passages in scripture and look at the word blessing and and locate that to be only temporal blessings with the conclusion that if you really trust in God, if you really loved God, he will give you everything that you want. But then on the other side, there are those who may look at other passages and say, well, if you really trust God, if you, if you love him with all your heart, you will eschew any kind of temporal luxury and give yourself only to poverty. 
And so we have these two extremes, and then you can probably find examples anywhere on this spectrum between the two. But as Pastor Brian mentioned in the announcements, the issue of money, stewardship, temporal possessions, whatever that may be, is addressed really throughout all of Scripture. We have in the Pentateuch and the historical books references to possessions. You have the prophets who preach robustly against the exploitation and the hoarding of possessions. Then you have the Gospels, Jesus' very own words. On one hand, he reminds us that temporal things are good. But then he also says that if you could summarize the chief rival to God, it would be mammon. And then in the epistles, you have a development of these things. And in Revelation, they make an appearance there. And so all throughout God's word, we are instructed how we are to live in this life. And all of God's word is profitable, and we know that. And it reveals who God is. It reveals ultimately that great act of redemption that he has procured for us in Jesus Christ, but also in God's goodness and kindness. He does not only give us revelation that has to do with the next life. He also gives us revelation that has to do with the mundane affairs of this life. We could say Monday to Saturday. And we have there the wisdom books. And the wisdom books teach us how we live and navigate in this fallen world. We have the book of Job, this great treatise on how we suffer well. And we know that Job kind of pushes back on some of the prosperity teaching because here is Job, the most righteous man, who was also the most wealthy. But yet, as God comes and tests him and tries him, he loses everything in a day. But he still remains godly and righteous. And so, we walk through that book and we see something about how God's people suffer. We have the book of Psalms, that great wisdom literature that teaches us how to worship how to praise God, how to pray, how to confess, how to lament, and how to live our lives in the assembly as we give him glory. Then there's Proverbs, that great book that provides these short, pithy statements that give to us generalizations of how things normally or ordinarily are. But we know when we read Proverbs that We often find in our own experience as we seek to be wise and we seek to lean not on our own understanding that not everything turns out well. And that's why God in his goodness gives us Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes deals with the anomalies and the incongruities of life and and how we are to continue to be wise when not everything seems to go as it ought to be. And so Ecclesiastes is that great wisdom book that teaches us how to live each day with eternity in view, 
keeping God before us, who sees all and knows all and ordains all, and who is just and who will make all things right. And throughout this book, there is much attention given to the things of this life. And that's what I want to consider this morning. There are many propositions that we could consider from the book of Ecclesiastes, but I want to consider this morning five in order to bring us to a place of the wisdom of grace-shaped, generous gratitude. Not being generous simply for things, but being generous and grateful as the totality of our life, regardless of possessions, regardless of circumstances. And so I want to consider the first truth this morning, that material possessions can easily become idols when we seek fulfillment in them. And that's really what Solomon is addressing in the first 23 verses of chapter 2. He is considering a whole host of things. And as we look at material possessions, we don't want to limit it to just money or things, but really it's all things that we enjoy in this life. You have knowledge that Solomon considers. You have work, your vocation, your toil that he considers. There's pleasure there's possessions. And what he draws our attention to as he contrasts this life with these things, that no matter how much is gained, no matter how much wealth is amassed, no matter how much knowledge is attained, it will never satisfy. It will never bring us contentment. And at one level, we're all searching for that. We all want to know that when we wake up in the morning and we do whatever it is we have to do that day, that it has meaning, that it has purpose. And so it's easy in this life to, to then base our meaning or purpose or status on the accumulation of things or knowledge or pleasure. But at the end of every section, he tells us this repeated phrase, vanity of vanity, all is vanity. Now, that is going to be a theme of the book. And based on how you, you want to say, interpret or gloss that word, it's going to shape the direction of this book. There are some who will take that phrase and use the connotation it often means today, which is, which is meaningless, right? So, so meaninglessness of meaninglessness, all is meaningless. Now, that's not where he's going. The word that he uses is a word that has to do with breath. And so if you wanted to translate this literally at the end of each section, it would be breath of breaths, all is breath. And, and in God's kind providence, it was cold this morning so that we can use this as a natural illustration. When you walk outside and you breathe out, you see your breath. But the question is, how long do you see it? It goes out and it's gone. And that's the point. That... Things in this life, and this life itself, is temporary. It's a vapor. And 
That's why whenever we look to the things of this life to give us that satisfaction, to give us that fulfillment, they're never going to satisfy because there's always something more. And again, you can work hard and you can feel like I'm not doing enough and you add more work and you think if I just add this, then I will matter. And you get there and you realize, but there's still more. And you look at possessions or you look at knowledge. And, and even Solomon in chapter 1, he, he's going to remind us that the more knowledge you attain, the more sad or hard things you learn. Growing up, my, my mom has probably one of the most bubbly personalities. My dad, not so much. And they would often communicate, and my mom would want my dad to be very happy, and, he's, and he would say, I know too much to be happy. And he's just quoting Solomon. And from Solomon's perspective, there's a sense in which the more you learn, the more you see about this world, the more heartache there is. And so that can't satisfy. And so you look all around, and you ask yourself, why is it? That once I get what I think will make me happy, there's an emptiness. Remember several years ago, I had saved up and got a new bike. And, and that night in bed, I was on the phone and Bridget says, what are you looking at? And I said, new bikes. And she says, did you not just get one? I said, but this one is a pound lighter. And on the hills of Signal Mountain, that would be great. And she says, you could eat less donuts <laughs> and lose five pounds. And now the net gain <laughs> is better. But I remember thinking, you get what you think you want. And again, whether that's circumstance, experience, things, they don't satisfy. And, and Solomon tells us why. Because we are fundamentally different than any other thing in this created world. In chapter 3, Solomon says that God has set eternity in your hearts. That's a remarkable statement because we, in one sense, are temporary. We're going to be born and then we're going to die. But we don't cease existing because we are made in the image of God. Only in humanity has God breathed the breath of life into us. And we have become a living soul. And God has put eternity in our hearts so that we can have satisfaction. We can have purpose. We can have contentment and joy. But it can never be found by anything that is in and of itself temporal. If eternity has been set in our hearts, then the only thing that will satisfy is that which is eternal, and the only reality that is eternal is God himself. And so God has made us, as Augustine reminded us, for himself, and our hearts will be restless until we find our rest in him. So then the question is, if we are made to find enjoyment in God, who alone is eternal, then how do we deal with all the stuff of life? 
Do we, like some, say, well, I'm going to give myself only to God and I will shun any kind of temporal pleasure? Well, Solomon brings us really to the heart of the philosophy of his book in verse 24 and following. And this brings us to our second truth, that material possessions are God's good gifts to be enjoyed with gratitude. Look again at verse 24 and following. He has evaluated all of these things under the sun in and of themselves, but then he says there is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. And here it is, this also I saw is from the hand of God. And at each section in his book, as he addresses work, possessions, circumstances, pleasure, he will always bring us back to in and of themselves, they will leave you wanting. But if you see them as gifts from the hand of an eternal God who is good, then there will be contentment. Then there will be enjoyment because that contentment, enjoyment is found not in the gift, but in the giver. And you have your affections drawn out after the kindness and the goodness of God who gives you all these things. And you see now how when your attention is to the one who is eternal and the one who in himself never runs out, you now can be content in whatever it is you have, even if there theoretically is more to be gained. Because the joy is in God. And you have this throughout life. And you see how liberating this is. Solomon is going to walk us through throughout this book the harsh realities of this life, but taking us back to God's goodness and God's generosity. And so now when we consider what he calls our portion or our lot in life, we can thank God for it rather than adding more to our toil. This liberates us to, to have what we have with open hands. It liberates us to labor with balance, to enjoy that which God has given us, not just in the things, but also the people. He's going to bring us to this place at the end of the book of rejoice in the wife of your youth. What a joy it is, right, to engage in your work and then come home to a happy home. One non-biblical proverb made the observation that it is much better to come home with toast and a happy family, to come home every day to flame and yawn and live in misery. There's a simplicity to, if I could say, the good life. You work with what God has given you. You enjoy the labor of your work according to the portion that God has given you. And you rest content because it's found in God. 
But it's not just material possessions, which again include knowledge, pleasure, labor, and wealth. It's also circumstances. And this is sometimes where things can get a little close to home. We might say, you know, I don't really have a problem coveting things. I don't really have a problem being generous with stuff. But circumstances are a whole different matter. You can find yourself in difficult, trying times and yet see what appears to be ease of circumstances in others. And so the third truth this morning is that God orders times and circumstances so that we will live by faith in both prosperity and adversity. And this is the famous chapter 3 made even more popular in the 60s by a folk song, to everything turn, turn, turn. And we see here that there are 14 pairs of opposites. There is a time to be born and a time to die, 14 opposites. And if you like literary devices, that is called merismus. And the totality of the 14, we have then all of them, called a bracketology, if you're into that. And the whole point of these is that every appointed time, whether it's being born and dying or everything in between or any of these 14 pairs, it expresses the totality of life. And God orders and ordains all of it. And this is comforting. Because not all of life is easy. We love the times of laughter, but we also know that there's times of weeping. In a later chapter, Solomon's going to tell us that it's actually better to go to the house of mourning than it is to go to the house of feasting. And so all of these circumstances, all of these times that you are going through, all of the situations of your life, are because God has ordered them. Now, we might look at them and be frustrated because we don't understand. Well, Solomon tells us, well, that's the case. We're not able to understand always. But from God's perspective, he has made everything beautiful in its time. For him who is the divine orchestrator of all things, the one who has ordained all things that come to pass. He sees the beautiful tapestry of the outworking of his providence and how it is all working together for the good that he has planned. But yet for us in the moment, we don't always see it. And so what what is proper faith? We go through hard times and maybe know someone who does it and we, and we say things, consider it all joy. And we tap them on the shoulder and say, you know, it's all working together for good. And the expectation is, look, look, faith, faith is strong. You should smile. Well, no. If it's a sovereignly appointed time for weeping, then the proper response of faith is weeping. It's not smiling. If the, 
if the sovereignly appointed time is to laugh, then don't weep. Laugh. But, but do you see, there is a corresponding act of faith to every circumstance ordered for you. And sometimes they're tough. Sometimes it's hard. We see these unfolded for us in the Gospels. You have the man born blind. And some say to Jesus, what sin did this little boy commit that he would be born blind? And Jesus says, in a sense, how dare you? How dare you? And so they say, well, what, what, what sin did his parents commit? And they say, how dare you? This child has been born this way because you're about to see great things and God's going to be glorified. But that doesn't mean that being born blind and living blind was easy. It was hard. And, and we have here in our midst those who, who suffer. And the temptation is to say, why? And you know what? We don't always know why. But we do know that God orders all things. And he makes it all beautiful in his time. And he is just. And so this is why Ecclesiastes says, look, live now with the end in view. Because God is just and he will make all things right. And so don't look to the circumstances for your contentment. God, and it's okay, can I say even at Thanksgiving, it's okay to weep, because you sit around the table, and maybe not all is well with all the relatives, and you're going to do your best, and you're going to seek to walk in Christ-likeness, and that's good. But some tables may be filled with laughter and other tables may be filled with silence and then later tears. So we trust in God, who is good. Fourth proposition God transforms the Christian's use of material possessions from futile hoarding to wise stewarding. Solomon will compare and contrast how the one without God goes about his toil and what they seek to do. And in chapter 4, 1 through 8, you have a stark picture of the one who tries to amass and amass and amass and amass all for the sake of gaining more and more, but not not to be generous themselves, but to hold. And he's already alluded to the futility of this. Even Solomon acknowledges, you may be as successful as you can be in this life, but you're still gonna die. And if I could maybe update the language here, all that you work for is going to go to the moron and they're going to waste it all. And so what does hoarding really get you? 
nothing but futility. But factoring God and fearing God, keeping his commandments, the heart that has been transformed by grace. Ah, here is wise stewardship. You see the needs before you. You don't put everything in one pot. Even chapter 11, cast the bread on many waters. Don't invest everything in one thing. I think we learned that this last week. FTX Bitcoin is going to come and it's going to go. And if it's all there, you got nothing left. But you deal wisely. You deal generously. And again, if it all has come from God's hand, and it's a gift, then how can we miserly hold on for ourselves? See, grace takes eyes that are naturally turned inward, outward, and we want to mirror God. And lest we think that our circumstances tell the story of the heart, we have our fifth truth. And this is a bit wordy, and that's intentionally so, because sometimes Solomon can be wordy, and that's under inspiration. So, so for literature professors, writing professors, sometimes it's okay to be wordy. Trusting in God is ultimate, because prosperity is not always good, and adversity is not always bad, and prosperity is not always good. And ad- or bad, and adversity is not always good. Just what you see never tells the whole story. You can have someone who is in a time of prosperity, and it may look as though they have it all together. But you remember the parable, the story that Jesus tells. Here's one who had so much, looked like everything was together, and the only thing that he could think that he could do was to build more barns, to hold it all, and it was that night that his soul was required of him. So prosperity in of itself is not always good, and adversity is not always bad. There are times which God's people go through adversity. And look, let's go back to Job. Why did Job suffer? His friends thought it was because he had some sin, but Job suffered because he was holy. In fact, he was so holy that God says, have you considered him? And so from the appearance, everybody looks at Job and says, man, you've lost it all. You must be on the outs with God. And yet, at the end of the book, through all of it, of Job it was said, and all this he sinned not. But prosperity is not always bad. We don't want to go to that flip side and say, well, if they're prosperous, it's probably because, you know, they've sold their soul somewhere. No. We have evidences throughout Scripture. In fact, in God's Word, the godly wealthy are never condemned. And so also in Scripture, the ungodly poor are never commended. And so again, what, what's the reminder here? What's the point here? That we don't find our contentment in our circumstances. 
there's only one reality that is unchanging, and that's God. And he's always good. And this is Paul, right? You remember Paul with his, with his wonderful statement, you know, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And, and, and we, we attach that to all sorts of things, but the context there is contentment. What is it that Paul is able to do through Christ who strengthens him? It is to be content when there was abundance, and it is to be content when there's lack. And so whether there's abundance or whether there's lack, God is good, and with him there is no shadow of turning. This is the, you know, this is the one thing that we can rely upon in this changing world. Our circumstances change, our emotions fluctuate, Everything is up and down, but yet there is God with whom there's no shadow of turning. James tells us uh, he is the one, right, who, who made the stars. Well, that's important there because for centuries, how, how did sailors navigate? They navigated by the stars because the stars are the most fixed object in the heavens, but yet they shift. There's one thing that is more stable than the stars, and it's God. And so in all of this, the message of Ecclesiastes is get the focus on God who is himself the generous giver and see everything in this life as that which has come from his hand and therefore be content in him and enjoy them. You know, look, I know we're Presbyterians, but man, it's, it's okay to enjoy things. Like, Take, like, these are God's gifts. That's why he's given them to us. And so what does all this look like? Not only for this week, Thanksgiving week, but for all of our days. We come to the end. We see first that Christians glorify God by thanking him for the goodness of material gifts because all that we have comes from him. If God is good, and his gifts are good, then it's not wrong to attain gifts. Right? So, so it's not wrong to work. Be diligent in your work. And whatever that is, whether it's something that's out in the open and people see, oh, wow, you do that, or it's in the home, or it's white collar, blue collar, whatever it is. God has given you work that matches how he made you. There's an individual here who is an absolute genius when it comes to working with hands. And I look at that and, and I find myself often becoming incredibly envious. Someone says to me, well, look at YouTube, those do-it-yourself. It's like, I, look, the moment they show the tools at the beginning of the video, I'm out. I don't even know what they are. And I, and I look at others, and I say, man, it's amazing how they image God in their, in their abilities. When God say, man, I didn't make you to be that. Be, be who you are. Don't, like... Look, not, not one of us can image God fully. But us, to, as the body of Christ, do, do you see how we image God more fully together? 
And God has given us good gifts, and therefore give him thanks. Whatever it is that you are, whatever it is that you have, maybe today, give him thanks. And on Thursday, when you go around the table, give him thanks. And then on Friday, wisely not going to Black Friday sales and dealing with traffic, give him thanks then too. And in February, still be giving him thanks. You glorify him in that way. Again, when you give, we're coming up to Christmas. When you give gifts to your family, to a loved one, to a friend, you, you don't purchase a gift in the search for it and say, you know, I'm, I'm going to get them something that's going to maximize their displeasure. I want them to open this up and feel sadness. You, you want to give a gift that is open and you see the joy and you see the gratitude. And you love that. And so God gives gifts to his children. Some in greater measure, some in less, some in easier circumstances, some in more difficult. But he is there with you in it all. Secondly, Christians glorify God by stewarding gifts generously because God is generous. All of these things that we've talked about, that all of the gifts under the sun are but mere shadows and echoes of the one through whom the Son was made. The greatest gift is the Lord Jesus Christ. Samuel Rutherford says, when God sent the Son, he bankrupted heaven. There was nothing more that God could give than his Son. And all of these other things are but echoes and shadows to drive our heart to say, Lord, thank you for that unspeakable gift of Lord Jesus Christ. God is not only a good God, he's a generous God and his hands are open and he has given himself. And what is the proper response to that is that we may be like God in being generous, not to take his gifts and hoard, but to have open hands. We see over 50 times in Proverbs, he addresses wealth and money. And over 25 times in Proverbs, he addresses the needy and how the wise see and care. And then finally, Christians glorify God by serving as instruments through which God meets people's needs, bringing praise to him and unity to the church. And this is the marvel of marvels. If God wanted to meet people's needs directly and immediately, he could. But in his wisdom, he takes us and ordains that we become instruments to meet people's needs. This is, this is marvelous. And in 2 Corinthians, where you have the saints who, who are in disarray and they've been persecuted and driven from their homes, they have nothing. Other Christians who've never met them are taking up the collection. And Paul says this in chapter 9, you are enriched in every way in order to be generous in every way, which, in the conclusion, which produces thanksgiving to God. And then he says, for this ministry, this generosity, 
not only supplies the needs of other saints, but is overflowing in thanksgiving to God. And so the way that God has ordered things is that he is glorified and and his glory is maximized by using his people. And so we can take the gifts that we've been given, give him thanks for it, see a need, give those to others. Now they have a need met, but ultimately what are they doing? They're giving God thanks. They're not praising us. We don't praise one another. We thank God for each other and he receives the praise. And that's how he's ordered all of it. And so when we see all this, we say, we stand before a God who is great, who is infinite, eternal, unchangeable in all of his attributes. He's a generous God, and he's given us Christ, and he's reconciled us to himself, and he has transformed us to now see the world in a whole new way. Now we don't navigate the things and the circumstances of life with that will make me happy. He makes us content. And now we just live freely, enjoying the gifts, sharing the gifts, and giving him ultimate praise for Christ's sake. Let us pray.